and welcome to the latest edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. On this edition of our show, I'll be joined by CBS Sports' John Rothstein, Kentucky's Keon Brooks Jr., and Xavier's Kobe Jones. Uh, Kentucky was our national team of the week after they knocked off Florida three in a row in the SEC as they get ready to play Alabama. Kobe Jones with the potentially shot of the week weekend when he knocked in a three to beat Providence on Sunday at the buzzer. Uh, it was a horrible weekend for him. He lost his grandfather, caught up with him back home in Alabama as he gets ready for the funeral and uh, just talked to him about all the emotions that he's going through. Obviously, the overall shot of the weekend, maybe the shot of the season came from our player of the week. Texas is Andrew Jones. I direct you to an interview I did with Jones after that on Saturday afternoon. This is three years from him being diagnosed with leukemia. And Jones hit a three-pointer to beat West Virginia. He's such an inspiration. What a wonderful young person. And, you know, he's shared his story with us and others, but especially here at March Madness over the last couple of years in his journey. I mean, he couldn't walk when he was first going through his treatment. And now look at him. Uh, he's just been such uh, a role model for those that are going through something similar to continue with your dreams and to continue to pursue them. So I direct you that. It's on our March Madness uh social media accounts. Uh, of course, March Chadness. And then Cats Ranks. Looking at the teams that have turned around, dovetailing off of Kentucky's turnaround, we'll talk about the top 10 teams that I think have turned their seasons around. Uh, before we get to John Rossing, because we, we really did cover the canvas of the season, uh, I just want to reiterate that we're all trying to navigate this season. I think people, coaches, players, staff, athletic trainers, doctors, administrators, game ops, officials, they're all doing their best to make this happen. And there's so many people that are sacrificing for this season. And look, there are pauses. They keep popping up and their team's coming on, coming off, coming on, coming off. Hopefully we get to February 1 and we've kind of stopped all that, but we may not. We may still have this all the way up into March. Uh, and so if we do, we got to deal with it. But I still say, I, I really believe this, that the majority of games will get played in every conference. And if teams can somehow get to 18 to 22 as an average, that will feel like a full season, at least as best can. I mean, look, there were football teams that played, what, six games? So if you can get to an 18 to 22, uh, obviously the Patriot League's only going to play 16. We know that, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was 16. You know, look, that still will be a major accomplishment. Where we're going to get in terms of conference tournaments, I think it's still to be determined, but we're going to get there. And we're going to have an NCAA tournament, and I still think it's going to be one of the most unique events we've ever had. And last week, we discussed the venues with Dan Dockich uh, and with Mitch Barnhart. And the week before, Dan Gavitt, we talked about uh, the health of the game and the overall strategy of having it in one geographic location. Uh, there'll be more details to follow on that. Actually, this Friday night, I'll direct you to our NCAA social series. I'll be with the chief medical officer from the NCAA, Dr. Brian Hainline. We're going to go over the new protocols for tier one players, staff, coaches, officials during the NCAA tournament. So all of that we will get to. But I want to get to my interview with John Rothstein because we really did discuss the whole country. So, you know, we want to go back and forth with the two of us. Uh, and he came up with a nickname for me. So here he is, John Rothstein. And now joining me here on March Madness, March Madness 365, my good friend from CBS Sports, John Rothstein. John, we are now a couple weeks into January. Uh, the throws of conference play, we're still getting postponements. But I would argue, and you've been great about putting this out, the majority of games are still getting played. And the level of play has statistically been much better than any of us could have projected. So let's first, a general thought of, despite a 100-year event, where do you think we are in the season in terms of the quality of games and the fact that we're getting, for the most part, high-level teams competing at a high level? No, I think we're doing, you know, an unbelievable job considering the circumstances, Andy. And a big thing for people out there to remember is that just because games are postponed with the intention to be rescheduled doesn't mean that teams are going to take a quote-unquote pause. There's a lot of different layers to this. And you know, you hit the nail right on the head, you know, given the circumstances, 
for the teams that have chosen to play college basketball this year, for the last month, Andy, that number has always been above 90%. And again, considering the circumstances that we're in a once in a century global pandemic, it's been an outstanding season from that regard. And remember, we're only 62 days away from Selection Sunday. Not that anybody's counting. But even look at like last Saturday, you know, if you look at a, a, the scoreboard, um, you know, three-fourths of the games were played. At the bottom, obviously, they're putting the games that were postponed or maybe some canceled. But for the most part, conference games are just being postponed. But it still feels like we're getting the majority of games in all the high majors. You know, the one-bid leagues are finding ways to reschedule. Uh, they're doing their back-to-backs, you know, which has actually been an interesting, I'll, I'll go a sidebar here, is what one thing that I'll be very interested to see is whether or not we get a majority of splits versus sweeps, because we're seeing that even more of splits on these back-to-backs versus sweeps. What do you think of that? Well, it's an, another interesting dynamic because we have certain teams who are in quote-unquote one-bid leagues that have done a lot in the non-conference portion of the schedule to potentially ward an at-large bid, but it's been the second game of the back-to-back that has really hurt those potential opportunities. I mean, Western Kentucky is a team that in South Dakota was sensational, nearly beat West Virginia, went on to win a game at Alabama in Tuscaloosa in December, but the last two weeks has lost the second game of a back-to-back to Charlotte and Louisiana Tech, respectively. Now, you think about that. If Western Kentucky was ever going to compete for an at-large bid on Selection Sunday, it could be going against maybe Maryland, who has on its resume a win at Illinois and a win at Wisconsin. So I think, you know, those second games of back-to-backs for those teams that are in non-power conferences could really be a detriment to them getting an at-large bid to the NCAA tournament. And what also has happened, John, is that I'll give you an example that was interesting to hear about was, for example, like New Hampshire and Maine. The front end on some of these trips have been difficult because they're traveling day of. And in this case, for example, New Hampshire to drive up to Maine day of snowstorm hits. They got to push back the start time. They arrive right before tip off. They lose. Now you get a night's sleep. Day two, they win. And so that's a flip of the back-to-backs where it could be a difficult travel just getting there. And then when you've had a chance to sort of settle in, day two, you can get a win. All right, in the high majors, let's just go around the country right now in the power group, and let's start with the Big East. Villanova on pause. We still expect them when they come back to be a national title contender. Creighton, in its absence, has played very well. And then after that, whether it's UConn, Xavier, Um, At times, Providence, you know, Marquette has had its moments. The depth of the Big East will still ways to shake out, but just your overall thought of where that league is right now. Well, you know, Villanova and Creighton are the two primary commodities when you talk about making a deep run in the NCAA tournament. I think UConn, though, is emerging right now as a team that's quickly challenging at the top of that league. And the interesting thing to me, Andy, is this is, you know, a cook, a cook came back Saturday against Butler. Andre Jackson has virtually given them nothing because of an injury and just because of a lack of productivity early. And UConn is still trending upward. So I think when you look at what the marriage has meant to both sides of this marriage, when it comes to UConn and the Big East, it couldn't be working out any better at the time we're taping this. The Huskies are a couple hours away from tipping off against the fall. But I think that UConn and Seton Hall right now look like they're contending for that third spot. And Seton Hall is a team that again has battled its own health issues. You know, Bryce Aiken's ball security was at a high level before this recent injury, but you know, Seton Hall to me looks like an NCAA tournament team. What their ceiling could be when they get there depends obviously on the health of the grad transfer from Harvard. All right. So the ACC, you know, to me there's depth, but I just don't see a title contender at this junction. That may change, you know, with Virginia, Uh, Clemson's obviously played well. They're on pause right now. Virginia Tech has been a big surprise. Still waiting for Duke to reach its potential. North Carolina has been all over the map. Florida State's been a little inconsistent on pause, coming back. Obviously, Louisville, disastrous against Wisconsin. Haven't lost since, um, but we still don't know how good they're going to be. Pitt's played better. What are your thoughts right now in terms of whether or not the ACC has a title contender versus maybe just a lot of decent teams? 
I think they have a lot of decent teams, but the team to watch in the ACC is Louisville. They have one loss this season. The loss came at Wisconsin without Carly Jones. And think about this, you know, Louisville has played this entire season without 40% of its projected starting lineup. Malik Williams hasn't played this season. Charles Midland, the grad transfer from San Francisco, hasn't played this season. They're a team to monitor. I think we need to see more out of Florida State because we have not seen the Scotty Barnes that I think we expected to see at the start of the season. The big reason for that is the COVID issues that they've had with games being canceled. And another issue is he was a power forward when he was coming up to college at the prep and high school level. And now he's trying to kind of transitioning to being more of a point guard facilitator type role. I think two interesting storylines in the ACC. Obviously, storylines are going to emerge when you don't have a vintage team at Virginia, Carolina, or Duke. But Mike Young loses Landers Nolly, and he adds a transfer from Wofford and Keve Aluma, who has been absolutely sensational. And Virginia Tech, really on some great valuations, like Hunter Couture, like Keve Aluma, like Justin Mutz, looks like they're trending towards the NCAA tournament. And another storyline is Clemson. So much has been made nationally about Chris Del Conte sticking by Shaka Smart at Texas and now reaping, obviously, the fruits of that decision by Texas being a team in the top five. You know, Brad Brunell, who, again, I know he went to a Sweet 16 a couple years ago, but prior to that, got the benefit of the doubt from his administration. And Andy, look at how it's manifesting itself. Clemson is a team that isn't going to wow you. I know they've got a star and an all-conference player in Amir Sims, but beyond that, it's just a bunch of really good pieces. And you know, it's a year in which Clemson has to really think that they've got a chance to finish in the top three or four of this league. Yeah, I completely agree. And another team that I should just throw out there and we'll move on here is Georgia Tech. Started 0-2 and has really performed well since then for the most part. They're on pause again. I mean, once those teams get back, and I think that will happen, they're another one to watch here going forward. All right, Big 12. Baylor obviously is the, the cream of this league, uh, but clearly... Uh, Texas looks like a team that could play for a Final Four berth. Never give up on Kansas. Obviously, they've played some close games, but have won them for the most part. And, um, you know, I'm waiting to see on Texas Tech. You know, they're going to play Texas this week. They haven't played Baylor yet. Uh, So let's see what happens. They did lose to Kansas. You know, Oklahoma's had its moments, Oklahoma State. So the league has great depth. But I also think they've got a title and multiple Final Four contenders. Well, the rubber is about to meet the road for Texas Tech, as you rem- referenced. You know, Texas Tech, you know, between now and Saturday is going to go to Texas and host Baylor. Texas Tech's best win so far, okay, is at Oklahoma, a game of one by two points. So we still don't know how good the Red Raiders are. The difference is obviously going to be if Mac McClung can evolve into an all Big 12 first team caliber player. He's a feast or famine player, Andy. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you go to obviously a, a nice formal dinner and you have, you know, your rubber chicken, but, you know, the famine isn't going to be like Yum Kapoor type famine. It's more going to be like, you know, the famine if you have the rubber chicken dinner and you want to slice after about 90 minutes after it concludes. But beyond Texas Tech, I think when you look at the dynamic with Oklahoma State, if Oklahoma State winds up being eligible for the NCAA tournament, which if they don't hear back from the NCAA prior to a certain date here in the next month or two, they will be. I think you've got an outstanding chance for 70% of the Big 12, seven out of the 10 teams making the NCAA tournament. And the other team, of course, is West Virginia. Hugs should be in the Hall of Fame. Hopefully it will happen. They win a game against Oklahoma State without Oscar Sheway, who's now on his way to Kentucky. So Hugs, of course, doing a great job there. All right, SEC. Kentucky now alive, one three in a row. They were our team of the week, started one and six. Alabama's been a big surprise. Uh, Tennessee obviously had the blip against Alabama. Uh, Missouri's dipped a little, but I think they'll come back up. You know, LSU, uh, you know, they've played for the most part pretty well. Arkansas never challenged itself, so I don't know, you know, how good they really are. But, you know, I think there's enough there with the SEC that we're going to see at least, you know, four to six in that range, you know, for the league. You know, I, I completely agree. An interesting thing about Tennessee, Andy, too, is in addition to being great defensively, you know, a large surplus of their primary players are all left-handed. It's an interesting dynamic that we don't really see a lot, that you see kind of, you know, that type of a dynamic. You know, I think a thing to look at with LSU, who was much better defensively Saturday against Ole Miss than it was last week against Georgia, is just can Cam Thomas continue to perform on the level that he's performing? I mean... You know, I've tweeted about it. I've written about it. You know, this is Buddy Heal 2.0. The difference is 
Buddy Heald, when he was a freshman at Oklahoma, averaged 7.8 points per game. Cam Thomas looks like right now a second or third team All-American. And as far as Kentucky goes, we see the difference that Keon Brooks has made in one game. And, you know, talking to the staff, you know, one of the things that they firmly believe, and I know, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, I know you know this, is that everybody talks about the fact that you couldn't have practice time. When you have a brand new team and you don't have exhibitions or guarantee games, it makes these major games that you play early your dress rehearsals. That's not obviously kosher when you have a team that's as lacking experience as Kentucky. All right, I'm going to skip over league here for a moment and go out west and the Pac-12. I actually think it's better than – now, the one disappointment has been Arizona State. They haven't been healthy. They've had COVID. Remy Martin hasn't played because of a death in the family. So they've been the outlier. But UCLA is now playing like we expected. You know, Oregon, for whatever reason, can't win at Colorado, but Colorado's decent. USC, I think, is now trending up, swept the Arizona schools. We know Arizona can't play in the tournament. And, you know, Stanford – has really started to play well over the last couple of weeks. Oscar Da Silva had a phenomenal week last week. I think when all things are settled here, the Pac-12 still could end up with like five bids, which I think would be much better than they could have thought at the beginning of the season. I'm completely in agreement. I think UCLA, Oregon, Stanford, Colorado, USC all look like NCAA tournament caliber teams. And Andy, you know, we have to you know continue to address this. When the Pac-12 initially made the decision to start play on January 1st, a lot of non-conference games that they had booked evaporated. Then they kind of doubled down, came back and said they were going to start on November 25th. If that hadn't happened, all of a sudden, Oregon has a game with Baylor. All of a sudden, other teams in the league have opportunities to bolster the conference's standing early in the year. That's why I firmly believe that this year, the selection committee needs to put more emphasis on the eye test Because if you watch these teams play, like Stanford, who obviously has a win already over Alabama during the Maui Invitational, like Colorado, like obviously UCLA, who, by the way, this needs to get more attention. The Bruins are undefeated in the conference, and they don't have, you know, a first-team all-conference player in Chris Smith. So McCronin doesn't have what he had, but he still has enough to compete for a conference regular season title. And, you know, the Pac-12, I know, you know, there's a lot of difficulties sometimes because they only play on Thursday, Saturdays to see them, you know, compared to the other conferences. But I think this is, again, a four to five bid league without question. I think the underrated story in this league is the job that Kyle Smith is doing at Washington State, one of the more underrated backcourts in the country with Noah Williams and Isaac Bonton. Great call. All right. Before we get to the two biggest story brands this season, One other story that I just want you to touch on because you get a lot of their games on the CBS Network family, and that is, you know, the Mountain West Conference. You've seen a lot of Mountain West Conference basketball over the last couple of years. Boise State, you know, I'm not ruling out San Diego State, but they've hit a little bit of a bump over the last month. You know, Utah State sort of has feasted on the bottom of the league so far, so it's hard to judge them. But Boise State clearly looks like the team that could be the team to beat in the league and maybe win a game or two. What have you seen from the Broncos? Well, Andy, the interesting thing when you look at this league, transfers from high major conferences have always been a backbone for success for teams in the Mountain West. And you saw it last year with Malachi Flynn and Yanni Wetzel at San Diego State. You know, Boise State has that. They have two transfers from Arizona, Devin Air Dutrieve and also Emmanuel Acott. Abu Kijaf started his career at Oregon. They have obviously, you know, a guy who went through the NBA draft process and Derek Alston Jr., They look like a high major team. And again, this is a team that has not lost a game this year at full strength because when they played at Houston, Manuel Acott wasn't available in that game. And also Devin Air Dutree wasn't eligible yet. You know, this is without question Leon Rice's best team yet at Boise State. And the two dates to circle are February 25th and February 27th. Those are the dates of the two games that Boise State will play San Diego State. But it's another team that if you watch them play, it's a team that could advance in the bracket. All right. So in the American, Houston's clearly the best team even without Caleb Mills. What are the chances that Tulsa and someone else could challenge them? Well, you know, we have to start giving Frank Haith more credit for what he's done at Tulsa and also at Missouri and Miami. You know, since taking the Tulsa job, he's averaged over 19 wins a season. He's the only team this year, Tulsa, is to beat Houston. So we have to expect Tulsa to be a perennial contender for the American Conference at the top, you know, as long as Frank Haith is the coach. Now, 
I spent some time on like, you know, the rest of the world who was watching the NFL playoffs on Sunday to really hone in on Wichita State. And this team is responding and playing cohesively. They're anchored by Tyson Etienne, who's a star guard and all-conference caliber player. They have good pieces around him back. And they also have a newcomer in Ricky Council, the fourth, that is really emerging. Looks like he's going to be a really good player down the road. So the Shockers, who were very competitive in a loss at Houston, you know, about 10 days ago, I think are another team to watch. And it's an interesting storyline with an interim head coach. And the Atlantic 10, St. Louis on pause coming back. They have become now the team to beat. Richmond has been a little inconsistent after a really good, strong early start. Dayton, great win against Davidson. They had that win over Ole Miss. At this juncture, I think, you know, I think we both feel comfortable. St. Louis is going to find a way to get in. Who else, how many else do you think out of the Atlantic 10? Well, I think the issue for the Atlantic 10 is the league is cannibalizing itself. You know, Dayton has the great win at Davidson, but you lose games to Fordham and you lose games to LaSalle. It obviously kind of offsets things. We've seen that throughout this league. You know, Richmond, I think, you know, confidently is the second best team. The Spiders have shot themselves in the foot a little bit with the Hofstra loss. They also lost the game to a good St. Bonaventure team. I would say that Richmond, St. Louis, St. Bonaventure at the top. And I think the team to keep an eye on is Rhode Island because you can't necessarily view Rhode Island by the record because of the non-conference schedule that this team played. I mean, they went to Wisconsin. They went to Western Kentucky. They played a slew of games at Mohegan Sun. And they have a big chip to play with because they have a win over Seton Hall on their resume. So I'd say that's obviously the top in terms of NCAA tournament contenders. I think an interesting thing, though, for the Atlantic 10 is for the league, in order, I think, you know, to have a rising tide lift all boats, as they say, it would be best for the league if St. Louis, on the heels of those two wins against NC State and LSU, could push out and do what San Diego State did last year for the Mountain West Conference. I think that would be best for the Atlantic 10. Well, and in the Valley, Drake is off to an undefeated start, 13-0. They're on pause, done a great job without Liam Robbins. All right, let us shift to the Big Ten and one other story. And with the Big Ten, you mentioned Maryland off the top. Wins at Wisconsin, wins at Illinois, been blown out at home. Two great wins. It's unfortunate they didn't have the non-conference to back it up. But arguably, you could make a case in some form or fashion that 11 teams could get in out of the Big Ten. Remember, the Ivy not participating, so there's going to be 37 at large. And it'll go to who's deserving. And the Big Ten may have more deserving teams uh, rather than, I don't want to break down all 11. You've done a great job so far. I won't put you through that. But just overall, your sense of this league this season. Well, I mean, I think we need to look at this perspective. You know, Nebraska hasn't won a game, obviously the weakest team in the league right now, but had Indiana on the ropes Sunday night, you know, at Pinnacle Bank Arena, you know, and this is something that, you know, I wrote last week, Andy. This is another example of why without guarantee games to really, you know, bolster a record, why you can't just depend on the numbers. You know, Purdue is eight and five. They're probably the best eight and five team that we've seen in college basketball in quite some time. And the same with Indiana. Indiana's a team that's eight and five, but took Wisconsin to double overtime last week in Madison. It reminds me a lot of the 2013 season when Michigan was the five seed in the Big Ten tournament, but wound up playing for the national championship and wound up losing the Louisville in Atlanta. I think it's going to be that type of a year. And the thing that you always have to be mindful of in the 2017 ACC is a perfect example of this is when you have a league that's this good from top to bottom, the bottom is capable of eating the middle. And that hurts the league in terms of NCAA tournament representation. And, you know, we can't leave out Penn state from that as well, because Penn state could have wanted Michigan could have wanted Indiana and has enough veterans back to win five, six, seven games in this conference. And I will say this, and this leads to my final point. It's clearly the best league. It will be the best league. I think over the long haul, it will continue to be the best league, but they may not win the national championship and that should not be held against it. Why? Because there's a team out West, the number one team in the country that is as good an offensive team as I have seen you could argue back to UNLV in the early 90s. Are they as intimidating? No. They don't have a Larry Johnson, you know, a Stacey Ogman. That's true. But they have so many different weapons. And Jalen Suggs is, I mean, he has superseded Cade Cunningham as the best freshman in the country, in my opinion. And 
he just continues to electrify his passing is equaling now his scoring and the way Kispert and Timmy have played. Oh, by the way, Joel Ayaya, the first ever triple double in Gonzaga history, a name that doesn't roll off the tongue when you talk about Gonzaga. Their overall depth is phenomenal. At this juncture, your overall impressions of what we're seeing from the Zags as they enter the heart of the season as the favorite to win the title. Well, Andy, you know, the interesting thing about this Gonzaga team is they've already proven that they're made for all seasons because the games that, you know, Mark Few scheduled in the non-conference were different stylistically. Like they went against the physicality of West Virginia. They played against Virginia and that slow down tempo where they scored 98 points. They played Kansas. They dealt with all those things and they passed with flying colors. And Iowa, I don't think the story anymore is whether or not Gonzaga is going to get to Selection Sunday with a perfect record. I think the story is, will it be tested before Selection Sunday? There are not going to be these raucous home court advantages in the West Coast Conference. It's not going to exist at BYU. It's not going to exist at St. Mary's. So based on what we've seen so far, and look, the WCC is an improved league. It would have three single-digit seeds in last year's NCAA tournament. San Francisco beat Virginia. I think the league has done a great job. But I don't see, given the circumstances with a lack of fans in attendance, how Gonzaga is going to be tested before Selection Sunday, let alone lose a game. I completely agree. 20,000 fans at the Marriott Center we saw last year was one of the best games of the season and BYU beat Gonzaga. All right, John, you are famous for your nicknames, it's been a great little shtick for you, and it has caught on from pounding nails to an assassin to a CPA. I'm, I'm doing the back end of these. Uh, you've got them all. So, look, I've been in this business a while. Do I get one? Andy Katz, media mensch. Love it. See, you cross all spectrums there from being a good guy to helping those that have come behind me and... Yes, I'm very honored to have that one. Media Mensch. And we can translate for those that don't get it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. A thousand percent. A Mensch is a good human being who looks out for others. And uh, I'm honored to be called that. So I appreciate that, John. Media Mensch. It's quick. It's catchy. It's going to catch on big in Newport next summer. Yes. (laughs) All right, John. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Andy Katz, that guy will rank his wife's dinners. He'll rank anything. And now it's time for Cats Ranks. I'm going to look at the top 10 teams entering the week of January 11th that I think are turnaround teams. Okay, let's start at number 10. Toledo. Rockets have won 9 of 10. And keep in mind, these numbers are entering the week of January 11th. They won 9 of 10 after starting 1 and 2. They had won 7 in a row, 5 and 0 in the MAC with Bowling Green. At number 9, Tulsa. The Golden Hurricane had won five in a row to go to seven and three, and that includes a win over Houston in the American. At number eight, how about the Pitt Panthers? They had a great win a while ago, by the way, over Northwestern in the final possession of the ACC Big Ten Challenge. But Pitt opened the season with a loss to St. Francis of PA. Since then, including that Northwestern win, they've won six of seven. At number seven, the Duke Blue Devils. Duke lost back-to-back in terms of back-to-back weeks, home games to Big Ten teams, Michigan State and Illinois. Since then, and they've had some stoppages in terms of they went home, a couple games were canceled on them. They've won three in a row, including a road win at Notre Dame, home wins over BC and Wake. At number six, Georgia Tech. Yellow Jackets really struggled at the beginning, started 0-2. Since then, they have won six of seven. On pause now, but the Yellow Jackets are certainly trending upward. At number five, Seton Hall. The Pirates have won eight of 10 after starting one and three. At number four, Louisville. Eight and one, three and zero in the ACC. The one loss was a brutal loss to Wisconsin when they were depleted. So they have really turned around since that performance. At number three, Stanford. The Cardinal went one and two in that relocated Maui Invitational in Asheville. Now, eight and three heading into this week, 
four and one in the Pac-12. At number two, Kentucky. The Wildcats, one and six in non-conference play, have now won three in a row in the SEC. Okay, so Kentucky's next game is at my number one team, Alabama. Four and zero in the SEC, nine and three overall. They've won five in a row after losing to Western Kentucky. So two SEC teams at the top of this cat's ranks in terms of turnaround teams, Alabama and Kentucky. That's your top 10 turnaround teams here for the week of January 11th. And now joining me here on March Madness, March Madness 365, Keon Brooks from Kentucky and the Kentucky Wildcats, our national team of the week. After dismantling Florida on the road in Gainesville, by far their best performance in quite some time, maybe of the season, 3-0 in the SEC going into an undefeated Alabama game this week. Keon, what has been the difference since SEC play has started? I think the difference is that, you know, as a team, we kind of hit rock bottom. Uh, We lost six games in a row. It was tough. You know, with the new year, we took that time to reset, refocus, and I think the attention to detail and our execution has been really good, and that's why we've been able to pull out these games. You know, the Mississippi State game and Vandy game were late possession games. Florida was, and we'll get to that in a moment. What also was the difference in terms of being able to close out games in those first two SEC games? Well, like I said before, we executed. We believed in our coaching staff, and we listened to them, and they put us in a great position to close those games out. We got stops when we needed them, and then on the other end, uh, offensively, you know, we ran the plays that, that the coaches drew up for us to a T, and uh, we always got a good look. That's how we closed some games out. When you got the first one in the SEC, how much of a sense of relief was there to just get over that hump? It felt good, especially to get one. And, you know, it's a new season. Uh, we're in conference play now. Uh, coach kept preaching to us that whatever we were before is over with. Now we're zero and zero. Going into conference play, you know, we're just trying to rack these conference wins up so we can initially uh, have a have a good chance in March. So the Florida game, you know, clearly uh, they had been playing well. I know they did not have Keontae Johnson, but they had, for the most part, been playing well. And that was by far your most complete game. You had 12 off the bench and everyone seemed to contribute. How do you attribute why that was maybe the most complete game you guys have played? We have fun, man. That's the, that's the first time I can honestly say that. We enjoyed playing basketball together. Um, it was my first game back from injury. So I was just excited to be out there just to just to run around. And then uh, my teammates, when I spoke to them after the game, they said they had fun. They they enjoyed being out there and we took pride in what we were doing. And that's why, you know, we were kind of able to blow that game away a little bit. And it also felt like some roles are starting to be defined. And I know, uh, and you know this as being at Kentucky, that you know, you didn't have a normal off season. You didn't got, you guys didn't take a summer trip or anything like that. And you didn't even have like the normal amount of non-conference games or scrimmage or exhibition to really start to define it. So it sort of took later, especially with a younger team than maybe normal. How much do you feel like the roles now are really much more defined, you know, going forward? I think our roles are starting to finally set in place. It's difficult when you don't have anybody that played last year out there on the court. I was trying to, you know, lead and do the best things that I could while I was sitting on the sideline. But, you know, it's different when you're out there in the ring and you're out there in the fire. But uh, I feel like our roles are starting to fall into place. People are realizing how Coach want, wants, wants them to play, which what we need to do for, for this team. You know, Coach preaches all the time, just once you figure out your role, be the best player in the country at that. And uh, I feel like we're, we're heading in that direction. You know, and to your point, even the older players like Mintz and Saar, they hadn't been in the program before, even though they'd played college basketball. So how, how has it been to sort of get this sort of group together, a player like you who's been there, transfers, newcomers, all trying to get on the same page in a short amount of time? It was difficult, especially with, uh, with COVID. In the previous offseason, you know, we had, we had a chance to, you know, spend time together, be around each other. Now with COVID, you know, the time we're around each other is limited. They don't really want you around anybody for more than 15 minutes. So how can you really get the, you know, bind in jail with your teammates? But, you know, I could tell slowly, but surely it was coming. We just needed to keep pushing at it. And eventually, you know, we were going to break through. And I think right now we're, we're doing a great job of, you know, relying on each other, trusting each other and trusting our coaching staff. And uh, we keep doing that, which should be good. 
So Coach Cal, Hall of Famer, he's been through this before, the ups and downs of various seasons and various stops. It didn't look like he panicked, but from your side on the inside, um, how was he able to sort of steer the ship so that there was no panic and to be able to recapture this winning feeling? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was difficult for Coach. Um, but like he, he says all the time, he's been doing this for a long time. He's a Hall of Famer for a reason, and he, he never gives up. Um, he's going to keep pushing every single day for us to get better, keep pushing every day for us, you know, to to buy in to him and to what the coaching staff is asking for us. And um, once we finally get everybody to, you know, buy in and, and trust in what the what the coaches have for us, we knew we could be something special. Um, we have the talent. We just need to put it all together. And, and Keon, I've talked to so many of your peers this season. Everyone knows this is difficult, but also for traditional college students, I have one of my own, um, you know, outside of academics virtually, there's not a lot of things to do. And you guys have that option. Other athletes obviously do as well, but not a lot of athletes. What has it felt like, even though there are sacrifices, to still at least have basketball, practice, games for those couple hours where you guys can get away and congregate and for some of it, not wear a mask? Yeah, it's a great feeling to, you know, kind of escape from the outside world for a good two, two to three hours for a little bit, you know, just to get lost in the game, get lost in basketball. I just, I'm big on, you know, just appreciate every moment you have. You never know what could or what might be taken away from you. So just take advantage of every single moment you have with your teammates, your coaches, and the people around you. It's, it's been fun um, being able to go through this with a group of guys like this that just want to learn and get better and just hungry every day. So, I mean, it's tough out in the world, but it's really good for, you know, at least for two to three hours a day, you can just get away and get lost in basketball. And the last thing, Keon, you know, the teams that are going to get to the tournament, in my opinion, they will have earned it because there's been so many things that you guys have to navigate that is not normal. Uh, There's no asterisk with this season as far as I'm concerned. What do you think about the teams that ultimately, and hopefully Kentucky, for your purposes, will get there as well, to the tournament in the state of Indiana, and what will it mean to get to that point after everything you guys have gone through throughout the course of the season? It'll just mean that we kept each other accountable and that we were disciplined throughout this whole thing. I think the best teams and who's going to make it far, hopefully get to March, will be the most disciplined teams. I know some of it you can't get away from, but uh, you know, if you just try to police yourselves and hold each and every one of each other accountable, that's the best thing you can do you know, with with what we're going on in the world today. Well, Keon, appreciate it. Glad you're back on the court. Big game coming up against Alabama. Stay safe. Thank you. You take care. And now joining me here are March Madness, March Madness 365, Kobe Jones from Xavier after hitting a game-winning shot to knock off Providence on Sunday. Really one of the shots of the season. His teammate, Adam Kunkel, had hit a previous game winner that I would say was also one of the best buzzer beater type shots that we've seen this season. Um, Yours came with just even a hair less to go in the game. And Kobe, first, let's deal with, and I want to get to the, the emotions that you're going through personally here in a moment, but the actual play of how you got so wide open you knew time and score and how you were shot ready to make it happen. How did it all unfold? Well, it was like originally a play for Adams to get downhill, but he made a great kick out to Paul wide open in the corner. And then my man originally came down and helped him. So he made a smart one more pass to me. And I knew there wasn't too much time left. So, I mean, when it just hit my hands, my feet were set and I was just ready to shoot. You know, at what point were you looking up at the clock to make sure that you could get it off in time? Uh, originally when Adam passed it out to Paul, I looked up for a quick second. Then I just knew like the time and place in my head when Paul passed it to me. You know, this was a great example, by the way, of team ball movement, of being in the right place at the right time and everyone being ready to contribute. If the ball gets you, if it's your time, what does that say about the Xavier offense and how the staff has prepared each one of you to basically convert if you're in that kind of situation? I mean, just like you said, like the staff, like the coaches, they prepared us. We go through these situations all the time in practice. So I feel like it's just second nature at this point. But um, yeah, it just shows the unselfishness we have on this team. So you were playing with a heavy heart. And uh, my condolences go out to you. You lost your grandfather. You're back in Alabama for the funeral services. If you can, uh, first off, just just tell us about your grandfather. I mean, um, 
I'm sorry. Um, he was just a great guy. Always supported me and my family. Um, I don't think he missed one game while I'm playing basketball, but I mean, he would do anything for anybody, whether it caused him to lose something, he'd give the shirt off his back if he had to. But I mean, he was just a great guy and a great family man. And, you know, I'm just curious of the timeline here. And, and we've all obviously, you know, unfortunately gone through loss in our lives at different points, and you never know when it's going to happen. How prepared were you to deal with this you know, at a time when, you know, you're obviously getting ready for a game and you're playing in a game and there's just complete chaos basically this entire year that we're all experiencing all of our lives? Oh, um, yeah, I got the news Friday night. My mom called me and told me. Uh, I was pretty down that night, but um, the coaches came over to my room, um, cheered me up a bit. And then the next day, um, just being around my teammates, it really helped me um, get my spirits up. But uh, I knew going into the game Sunday, I wanted to play. I wanted to play for him. I knew he'd want me to play in that situation. So, I mean, I was just glad I was able to go out there and play for him. You know, sometimes it sounds almost, you know, like a script for a movie. It doesn't even seem real that you hit a game-winning, buzzer-beating shot you know, literally 48 hours after the passing of, of your grandfather, who obviously you were close to, and you can't make this stuff up, and it just happens. I mean, now that you've had some time to digest, you are going through, you will continue to go through a grieving process here. How, how do you even put into words just what that 48 hours was like and the, the emotions of, of doing something like that and feeling as if it's almost, you know, a higher power of something out of your control, of, of being in that moment of hitting a shot like that you know, in the moment of dealing with your own grief? I mean, I really can't put it into words. I mean, it's just all God. Like, that shot, I feel like that was God. I mean, just these past couple of days really felt like a dream to me. It hasn't really felt, like, real, to be honest. Um, but, I mean, it's just all God. I knew my papa was watching me, watching over that shot for me. I mean, it just still doesn't feel real, though. You know, Kobe, that there's been, as I said, there's been so much grief this whole year. Uh, and in this small way, I mean... None of this is going to bring your grandfather back. But how much did that shot help in the healing process, if you will, your your family members of giving them just a little bit of joy among a dark time? Uh, yeah, I feel like it definitely helped out a lot. Um, all my family was watching the game at my grandma's house, watching it with her. Um, I texted my mom and my grandma and my aunt right after I got back in the locker room. And I said that shot was for him. And they all just send me back hearts and uh, saying I love you and stuff like that. So I feel like it definitely helped them out. I mean, it's helped me out a lot. Just not just hitting the shot, but just playing, going out there and playing that game. I feel like it just helps um, with the grieving process. I mean, in a way where there, there, there are tears of grief, but also tears of joy in a way, just in a weird way that you could have this special moment for him amid, as we're saying, just the, the grief that you're all feeling. Uh, yeah, like after I hit that shot, um, my emotions just took over control of me. Um, I don't know if you can see it in the video, but yeah, my um, tears of joy, tears of sadness, just knowing that he's not there, but I know I hit that shot for him. Um, it just kind of took control of me over there. So, I mean, I feel like I mean, that was just a good moment overall, though. You know, there's been so much talk this season of, you know, should we be playing? How do we play through this? Having moments like this. Uh, and all the sacrifices you guys have made, how much does it make it worth it, if you will, that you've got a memory for the rest of your life that was tied to his unfortunate passing that you can't duplicate? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely thankful. I'm thankful for the NCAA, you know, allowing us to be able to play this season. I'm thankful for all the teams um, around the country, their doctors for working so hard to be able to put us in the right position with the safety precautions going on. But um, yeah, I'll definitely remember this moment for the rest of my life. Kobe, if I can just take a little bit of a turn of, of what this team's been dealing with in that you guys were rolling along. Uh, I was actually going to do your Providence game at one point and then it was postponed. And then you come back and you're into the rugged of the Big East. It goes a little up and down, and now you've had this great win. Um, what, what was that time period like when things were going so well, and then, bam, you know, right off the bat, right before you're ready to leave for Rhode Island, you know, you're on pause, and then you have to sort of pick it back up? Uh, yeah, I think it just kind of interrupted the flow that we had. Um, I mean, you can kind of see it on our offense. Like, we were, weren't as crisp as we were before, but I feel like we're starting to get that rhythm and flow back. But, yeah, that pause definitely, like, put us a step back in the way just like flow and pace and feel. So as I said at the beginning, you hit one. 
Adams hit one. Uh, I can't remember a team that's had multiple players hit incredible buzzer beater type shots in a season before. What does it say about, you know, this team and, and, and the fortune so far of this group going forward? I mean, I'm just going to find a way to win no matter like what the circumstances are. Uh, I think we just have a lot of heart and a lot of toughness on this team. And we're just going to try to find a way to win every game. Well, Kobe, once again, I really appreciate you taking some time out. Our, our condolences to you and your family during this incredibly difficult time. Obviously, whenever you feel ready, we hope to see you back uh, on the court with Xavier and continuing what obviously has been and can be a pretty special season with the Musketeers. Thank you. I appreciate it. And now it's time for March Chadness with Chad Acock from Turner Sports. And Chad, I know I started strong last week. How would I finish? Yeah, Andy, you started strong and finished strong. It's your best week yet. I think it was probably the best week you've had since we've been doing this, uh, combining last season and this season. Uh, you went eight and one, eight and one, like unbelievable. You were almost undefeated, but uh, you crushed all the games except Florida and Kentucky. Obviously, that one didn't go the way you were thinking at all. But other than that, I mean, you nailed the other eight games, and we did have the Clemson UNC postponement. But Andy, you're on fire. I mean, did you expect that? Were you just feeling it last week? What you think? I, I think I was just feeling it. I really do, and. You know, look, I mean, as well as Kentucky, I wouldn't even say they were playing great. They'd won close games against Mississippi State and Vanderbilt. Um, and Florida had sort of figured itself out, you know, how to play without Keontae Johnson. So I don't think anyone saw a Kentucky win, but the margin and the way they dominated it. So um, I think 8 and one's pretty good. Yeah, not bad at all. Let's keep that same energy this week. Let's get it started with Tuesday night. Number nine, Wisconsin at number seven, Michigan. Last week, the Badgers did need double OT to take down IU at home. Meanwhile, Michigan, they're still flying high at 10-0. And, and you know, after steamrolling Minnesota, who do you like to win this one? So I've picked against Michigan, I think, twice and been wrong. And as much as I like Michigan, I think they're playing great. Obviously, Hunter Dickinson and Mike Smith have been two monster additions for Juwan Howard, uh, a freshman and a transfer. Mike Smith coming over from Columbia. I, I'm just going to go with Wisconsin. I think experience will matter here. I think that Micah Potter and Nate Reavers can potentially help neutralize. They're not as you know, strong as a Kofi Coburn, obviously, but um, I think the ability to run sort of different bodies. And, and I think Michigan's going to have a hard time defending Wisconsin on the perimeter. So uh, that could be an issue. I'm going to go with the Badgers. I wouldn't say an upset, but with a road win. Sure. No, that'd definitely be a big road win. So maybe that'll be Michigan's first loss of the season if it holds true. Another ranked matchup, number 19, Duke, at number 20, Virginia Tech. Uh, Virginia Tech, they've actually fared well against Duke in Blacksburg. Uh, you know, they've won three of the last four at home there. Who do you think wins this pivotal ACC matchup? So I'm going to go with Duke. They're playing much better right now. You know, it's not the same playing in Virginia Tech right now, obviously. Uh, those were games when it was crazy, and they went into this cauldron. And the moment they get off the bus, it's not going to be the same. So you've neutralized that home crowd, much like what has happened to Cameron, where, you know, a BC almost went in and won, let alone Illinois and Michigan State. But I like the way Duke is playing right now. I know Virginia Tech's playing well, but I'm going to go with the Blue Devils in this one. Yeah, Virginia Tech has been playing well. They had that close loss at Louisville. They'll be home for this one. Yeah, I think it'll be a great game. Later that night, the only non-top 25 uh, matchup we have that night, Alabama at Kentucky. Neither team's ranked in the AP. But they both make your power 36. So, you know, the Cats will be playing host to a red-hot Bama team that's undefeated in conference play. And that includes a road win at Tennessee. Do you think they get another road win this time at Rupp Arena? No, even though I think Bama's playing better, ultimately Kentucky has more talent. And I think they're figuring themselves out. I like Kentucky at home here to really reassert itself within the SEC. And, and I said this during uh, the recap of looking at the rankings. I don't get how Bama was not ranked. They're undefeated in the SEC. They beat Tennessee, getting no love in the AP poll. None at all. And you've got them at number 12 in your power 36. Is that right? Yes. Undefeated. They won at Tennessee. Yeah, strong. Strong SEC resume so far. Let's move ahead to Wednesday night. Number 15, Texas Tech at number four, Texas. Texas obviously red hot with the recent road wins uh, at Kansas, at West Virginia. Texas Tech still searching for that big ranked win uh, of the season. Do you think they get it in Austin, or does Texas keep rolling? Texas keeps rolling. And we're going to wait for Texas Tech to get a big-time win because outside Oklahoma, they don't have one yet. Yeah, that's right. Let's look ahead to Saturday. we got a pretty good slate here, you know, top to bottom. 
Uh, we're going to start off with one more unranked matchup, and that's UNC and FSU. North Carolina kind of skating by right now. They had a one-point win against Notre Dame and then a two-point win at Miami. They had their game against Clemson postponed, so they'll face Syracuse on Tuesday night this week before heading to Tallahassee for this showdown. Florida State, meanwhile, they're just 1-1 one one in lead play after some postponements. So who do you like to win? I like the Seminoles. Um, overall, I like their team better than Carolina. Scotty Barnes had that game winner against Indiana. We haven't seen much or heard from much from Florida State over the last couple of weeks, but I think they come back off of the pause and they get this one. Yeah, I do too. If North Carolina was playing better, I might feel more confident in that, but no, I like Florida State to win at home too. How about number 21, Ohio State, at number 14, Illinois? You know, the Buckeyes, they're coming off a sweep of Rutgers. While Illinois dropped that home game to Maryland, maybe they should have won, maybe they shouldn't have. Who do you like to win this one? I like the Illini. I can't see them playing two poor games in a row. They did not play well against Maryland. Got to give Maryland credit. They went in and won that game. Took it away from Illinois. Uh, But I think Illinois responds here. Um, You know, Kofi is the big matchup problem for Ohio State inside. Seth Towns is not 100%. Uh, I like the Illini in this matchup. All right. How about number seven, Michigan, at number 23, Minnesota? Already touched on Michigan. Perfect start. But you've got them losing early this week. Minnesota, they've kind of recently struggled there. They lost by 25 at Michigan. Then they lost uh, by 15 at Iowa. Do you think they'll be able to avenge their loss, or do you think they'll suffer another one here? I I like Minnesota at home. They're a completely different team. So I'm going to go for a rough week for the Wolverines in what is obviously a brutal Big Ten, and that's going to happen. I think almost every team in this league will lose probably two in a row or at least two over a three-game span. And this week, it could be Michigan's turn. Yeah, if that doesn't speak to Minnesota's home and road splits, I don't know what does. You lose by 25 at Michigan, but you've got them taking down the same team at home. So we'll see what happens. Now let's move on to number two, Baylor, at number 15, Texas Tech. And talk about a gritty matchup. I mean, both of these teams are top five in defensive efficiency, according to Ken Palm. So if this game was at Baylor, I think it'd be a no-brainer. But, you know, Baylor, they got to go on the road here and get it done. Are you riding with the Red Raiders? Who do you like to win? Well, I called them out. They got to win a big-time game. I don't think they'll get Texas. But you know what? This is the one I could see them getting. They can have fans there. Not as many, but some. So I I think Texas Tech pulls this one off. This will be a massive win. So that's a bold prediction right there. I don't know if I'd feel comfortable picking against Baylor other than, you know, if they're playing at Gonzaga or something. But, wow, we'll see what happens. And then the last game I'm going to give you, number 18, Virginia, at number 12, Clemson. Speaking of defensive efficiency, Clemson is actually the team that holds that top spot in Ken Palm's rankings. But yeah, Clemson had to pause a couple games. This should be their first game back if nothing changes between now and Saturday. Who do you like to come out with the win? So I'm going to go with Virginia here. As well as Clemson has been playing, I think the pause could be an issue for them. I think Virginia's defense will travel. And Virginia needs a game like this. They need a win like this on the road because they have not had one. So I'm going to go with the Cavaliers to sort of reset that ACC race with a road win like this. All right. We'll see what happens there. That's actually a game I will be at. Andy, I'll be at Clemson to watch that game. But we will revisit all of your picks next week. You're coming off an 8-1 and one week last week, and we'll see if you can live up to those expectations this week. Appreciate it, Chad. Stay safe. All right, you too. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. As always, you can go to all our social media handles, March Madness ncaa.com for all our content we appreciate all that you guys are doing in terms of digesting it engaging in it both on facebook on twitter wherever obviously some of our other stuff appears on youtube through the ncaa so all of it we appreciate it big shout out to our turner sports team of chad acock abby stoltz sean bartley michael kaplan and of course the entire ncaa.com team that does an outstanding job of repurposing all our content and providing quality content on the website i'm andy katz your host Stay safe, everyone.